Welcome to the My Canine Coach Podcast, a show that coaches dog owners on how to achieve their ideal lifestyle with and for their dogs. You'll hear from canine coach Dana as she breaks down actionable dog training protocols, explores current dog training trends, and shares insights from her own experiences owning and working with dogs. Now, here's your host, canine coach Dana. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the My Canine Coach Podcast. I am your host, canine coach Dana. I'm joined by ever so quiet, not so much, Loki, who's in his crate next to me. And I have a special guest on the show today. Her name is Amber, and her business is called The Kinetic Canine. Welcome to the show, Amber. Hello, thanks for having me. You're welcome. So I brought Amber on the show today because typically you guys just hear me talk. (laughs) And it's nice to hear from other professionals in the area or just other professionals in general and get their take on training styles and methods and what they do. So I brought Amber on the show today so that we could get her perspective on a couple things. We have a topic in mind, which I'll reveal in a second, and you probably already know if you read the title of the episode. But what I want to do first is just that classic podcast framing bullshit of Hi, Amber. Who are you? Where do you come from? Why are you on the show? Why are you a trainer? So let's kind of start with how you became a dog trainer and we'll go from there. Okay. Well, again, my name is Amber. My business is The Kinetic Canine. I'm out of Duanesburg and I service kind of that area. Um, I actually met Dana through another trainer. So it's just, again, like she said, a part of our little networking world there. Um, you know, we clicked because we're both goofballs, so, you know. Majorly. Major <laughs> goofballs. <laughs> and anybody that's worked with us together knows that. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Again, you know, famous mood points mentioned that we do have monthly classes together if you want our dynamic duo. But anyway, so about me. So I started back in 2010 when I had a German Shepherd who was a major ass, complete reactive mess. People and dogs, especially dogs. And Did every, you get her at a certain age? I got her at eight weeks old. Oh, okay. So I got her at eight weeks old. So Where did you get her from? Somewhere up in Gainesville, New York. Okay. So I don't really think it was an ethical breeder, but I was 12 at the time. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> so I'm you are not looking up information or doing due diligence stuff. Craig no, you are not. Ad. Yeah, no, you are not. <laughs> I actually think it was um, like the Wanad Digest, whatever. But the guy, yeah. the guy was a hobby breeder. Okay. So he just the way he paid for his dogs was by breeding, and like in oh. order to keep up his like lifestyle with his four personal dogs, the money that he made off of the puppies went to take care. I of I actually have his never heard dogs. of anybody doing that before. Like that's this is the first time that I've heard that as a business, like a reason for breeding. Because usually yeah. it's like oh some extra money or you know the actual legit breeders want to have the health of the dog be the primary reason for breeding or whatever or sports. Yeah, yeah. You know yeah. this guy just used the money to like upkeep his dog's kennels that's crazy so like not a bad reason if it's a true reason and his dog we did get to meet the parents and his parent like the parents were actually pretty chill dogs so and it it was all out of his house so he didn't have like some grubby kennel or something like that so okay and did your parents like did you go with your parents to get the dog oh yeah yeah i guess i was 12. right so was it like you wanted a dog and your parents are like okay my samoyed was just put down Okay. And of course, you know, I had never grown up without a dog, so I was bitching that I wanted a dog. 
Yeah. So they got me a dog, and for, I, for some reason I said I wanted a German Shepherd, but I don't, I've never owned one at that point, so I didn't You know. probably just like the look of them. I probably like just a 12-year-old like kid. A 12-year-old kid, like, I want a German Shepherd. Right. But, um, so yeah, I got her, and it's like, I didn't do anything with her. Yeah. And then before she was a year old, my dad and I got into a fight. Yeah. And he opened the door and let her out the door. So she got hit by a car. Oh. So that big critical period of... Socialization. Socialization came to an ever-loving crumble because she was recovering in a cast. Oh, God, yeah. And so she was just pretty much, like, house sequestered. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was, like, some stupid argument of, like, take the dog out, and I said I had to do something first. And he was (laughs) like, well, I'm not door then which he had done in the past like just let the dog out because yeah like, kind of back then more people were just like yeah let the dog well, out. it was like, like more loose and free like dog ownership yeah. is, has and we could talk about that but the, yeah. that has completely changed from like our parents generation oh, to yeah. people today like, all their dogs different. like my mom has said they had a family dog growing up and she was like the dog wasn't an inside dog we just let the dog out in the morning and then it showed up again at night, yeah. or it just stayed in the yard during the day, yeah. and she was like, it would follow me around in the neighborhood, and then I would tell it to go home, and it would legit, like, go home, but it's like, that's all they did, the dog just kind of, like, existed with the family, so, like, the the change is crazy, but it makes sense for, like, that time to just be like, yeah, I'm just gonna literally let the dog outside. Like, I that's lived rural, that's normal. what everybody did. Yeah, it's so normal. They, all of their past dogs, they just let out, and none of them had ever gotten hit before. So it was just one of those things. It was like 10 o'clock at night. So yeah. go figure. It's the one car in the back road country that hits my dog. Right. But, um, you know, she did okay around people eventually, but it was dogs. It was seriously dogs that she was just lost her mind. and Because she was so under-socialized. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know... She we, was around people because she was around you guys, but she yeah. wasn't around And dogs. I took her everywhere with me. Like, hike, I was an avid hiker at the time. Yeah. And so we would pass people on the trails and she would just ignore them. But I ended up... Um, this, was back, this was back when certain TV dog trainers were popular and I yeah. was getting into their stuff. And I was like, okay, this works, this doesn't. I reached out to trainers, didn't do anything... Eventually, um, I did find Jeannie, which, side note guys, Jeannie is the one that we, um, me and Dana ended up meeting at a group thing at, like, yeah, so, yeah, but, um, I actually knew her from the roller skating rink. Oh, wow. From when I was in middle school and I went every Friday, her and her husband were there every Friday too. So when I reached out to her, I was like, hey, wait, I know you. I actually know who you are. Yeah, (laughs) so... I started working with her. Um, and she had, what did she have at the time? She, so she was a training mentor through Animal Behavior College at the time. Okay. So she was taking on, uh, like, students through the program. So the program, like, whoever's local gets pushed to whoever is a certified trainer. Yeah, in the area. Yeah, yeah it's okay. Like, they call it an externship instead of a mentorship. I'm not quite sure why, but... Because it's fancier. Because it's fancier. <laughs> <laughs> One of the requirements special. is you show up with a monocle and you go, I'm here to train some dogs. <laughs> but, um, you know, she had her... She had, like, five huskies at the time, too. Oh, it was, yeah. It was chaos. Yeah. And, um... You know, she worked with, with me and Shimani, and I ended up Shimani's actually... Shimani's your dog. Yeah, did we I? We never said what your dog's name oh. was. 
So I had to be like, wait, that's your dog's name? <laughs> the German Shepherd in question's name is Shimani. Yep. Yes, okay. I apologize. No, it's fine. So, Shimani um, ended up doing somewhat somewhat well there. Um, but I, more or less, I just kind of got more into it being with, around all the dogs that she had. Because at the time, she was doing actually like daycare, daycare. Like there was like 10, 20 dogs out and everybody was like in control, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Which she doesn't do anymore. I don't blame her, but it was... It's a lot. Back then, it was it was fun, and I enjoyed it. So, I ended up applying to Animal Behavior College. And how old were you at this time? Um, It was around 2010, so I was probably like 17 or 18. I had just graduated high school. Yeah, okay. So, I applied. I ended up signing up to be... Um, a student and ended up having her and another trainer at the time, Gina, that was there. That's confusing. Yes, Gina and Jeannie. Yeah. <laughs> That's very confusing. Yeah. Work with me. Um, I graduated that. My training style definitely shifted after that because a lot of the training through Animal Behavior College relies a lot on the quadrants. Okay. It's very pure positive based. It's very how to run a small training class, like more of a class puppy environment. Okay. okay. It's like, it's basically if somebody has no idea how to train a dog, like zero, that's where you would start. Okay. And I worked closely through that time because you have to put a minimum of 30 hours into the shelter. I worked with the shelter system and I was just realizing that for certain behaviors, that stuff does not work. Period. And I kind of drifted off from there and found a lot of different trainers that were more of the balance type. Okay. Started going to seminars. Yep. Trying it on my own dog. So, I mean, by the time that she was five years old at this point, I'm, I mean, if I'm doing the math right, got her in 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10. So, yeah, five or six years old. Okay. Completely off-leash trained. Yeah. I mean, it, so I got to experience firsthand on my dog what worked and what didn't. Right. Okay. So from there, it was like I knew what it was like to struggle, and I really enjoyed being around the dogs and helping people. That that's when I started saying like, "Hey, I'm gonna do this as a side hobby, like as a trainer." Okay. Cool. And then throughout the years, I I mean, there was a time period that I took breaks, but throughout the years, that's what I did. And then eventually, I think it was like what last year, year and a half ago, I left my time job and here we are doing doing great stuff <laughs> running kinetic canine running kinetic canine <laughs> helping dogs and owners doing the rehabs you know yeah all the good so things. and then now of course i have a belgian malinois he's two his name is cinder um because shimani had since passed uh, about two years ago at 15 so she had a she had a good haul i mean she had a really she had a nice 15 is like a nice long with reconstructive leg surgery yeah i mean that's wicked long oh yeah she had an acl tear at seven oh, so dang. i mean she she was a tough one and for not knowing the the lines of the breeding and yeah like you didn't really know what no. genetics no so. you were actually getting i mean she was akc registered but nowadays that doesn't account for much yeah that's true that's very true so kinetic canine started like right after you did your externship it gets a little complicated i had uh, a different business name it was packed balance yeah for a while but then when I decided to go full bore and get an LLC and insurance, right. it's like I wanted to change my logo, change my name, change everything. Yeah. So I did have, you know, a, a group of people that were still 
clients that knew me that were referring and then of course I was still known in the community so it was a little bit easier for me to just quit a job and run a business yeah because you kind of already had like a nice referral network working with the shelters like that must have given you some sort of um like pipeline put that way well especially because Gina the one trainer that I was talking about that was there helping me with Jeannie is now Amsterdam's animal control officer oh okay so she refers to me then Jeannie refers to me um and then there's a couple other trainers that had gone through ABC during the time I was there that know me that also refer most behavioral mod stuff okay. to me. Okay. Yeah, because that was like the next area or the next question that I wanted to ask you to talk about a little bit more too of like what are the types of cases that you typically take on, whether that be because you just seem to attract them versus what types of cases do you enjoy taking on the most and kind of like where that mix falls because if someone's listening to the podcast and they're like I want a dog trainer and I'm in the New York Duanesburg Amsterdam Albany area they're either looking at maybe me if they're listening to this podcast and now they know you what are the types of dogs and the types of cases that you seem to attract as well as the ones that you wish that you attracted more because you just like them more all right, well, we'll start with what I attract. Right now, for the most part, I get a lot of behavioral modification. So we're looking at human and dog either reactivity or like full-on aggression cases. So dogs that have been through other training systems, regardless of what the training systems are, are coming to me to try to find a better solution to get their dog more, for lack of a better word, safe. Yeah, okay. Um. So... Primarily, I get a lot of board and train stuff at the last couple months. I've been doing a lot of board and trains. And um, again, it's a lot of just human reactivity and, and stuff like that. So probably what I enjoy the most, which I can still work on with these particular board and trains, but mm-hmm. I really enjoy the off-leash training. Okay. So you're looking at off-leash recall, you're looking at an off-leash downstay, you're looking at an off-leash heel. Yeah. So my personal dog, half the time I have to figure out where the hell his leash is. <laughs> Very because true. Because most of the time he is just <laughs> off-leash. Yeah, he is. I like rarely ever see him with the leash on unless we're out in public and you're just being considerate yeah. for other people so exactly. they feel comfortable around him and know that you could grab him if, if they feel did. that you needed to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So that's, that's the fun stuff. Like right now I do have two labs that are going through a 10 day program to go from like no behavioral mod issues whatsoever. Like just happy go lucky younger dogs that just have no boundaries and don't listen to their owners. Yep. And they want to eventually get them off leash fully trained so they can be outside and go to parks. Well, it sounds like too, with where you live your client base is a lot of rural people and like that type of lifestyle you have lots of land and you want to give your dog the freedom because you have all the land to just let your dog go outside and romp around and be a dog but the fallback on that is that you if you don't have a well-trained dog that's awfully trained (laughs) they could can we joke about it now (laughs) they get hit by a car exactly (laughs) or you know they like take off after deer or you know something and now they're you know properties away from you which is acres away from you and how are you gonna get your dog back that's exactly what happens so they uh live on a dead end road okay that nobody walks on 
Yep, but somebody decided today's the day that I'm going to walk my dogs down this road and their dogs took off up the driveway and those two dogs were not friendly and a dog fight happened. Yep. So they were like, well, shit, we need to get this under control because if that can't happen again. Right, obviously. For obvious reasons. I mean, so at the end of the day, they just want a reliable recall and stuff like that. I mean, the behavioral mod is definitely very rewarding Mm -hmm. because... But it's also a lot of pressure because it's between you trying to solve a problem and even if you're successful, is the dog going back into a home where the owners can be successful? Yeah. Which again falls onto me and my ability to coach these people. Yeah. It also comes down to their lifestyle and if it's realistic to them. Right. Well, I said like, um, I think it was, I don't know, I think it was episode one or something i don't know don't quote me on that but one of the episodes i was talking about my experience being a dog trainer and i jokingly slash kind of seriously said that we're more in the business of being a people trainer than we are a dog trainer because like you said at the end of the day the dog doesn't stay with us it doesn't live with us it may live with you for a period of time if you're doing a board and train but it's going to go back to different people so it becomes our responsibility to be able to coach people on how to do what we have had years of experience doing. And that can be in and of itself a huge challenge that you have to really make sure that when we, you know, like when we're vetting clients and we talk to them, I try to be, and I know you do this too, I try to be as transparent as possible of what the outcome looks like and what the expectations are going to be for them and their dog moving forward if they want the training that we've created to be maintained. Correct. Right? Like, if they don't really envision it that I need to have my dog off-leash down at a distance for the rest of its life, then they don't have to really keep that up if they only want maybe the recall portion kept up, right? We'll still do all the work to get you there if you like the process of doing it, but it really does come down to the client of determining, hey, this is the thing that I actually really want to keep solid. I'm going to have to follow these steps in order to keep it that way. And with behavior mod, the you're playing with a bigger fire than just, oh, can my dog lie down when I yell at it across a field? <laughs> which, is, which is what everybody does, too. <laughs> I'd say my biggest struggle with owners is, like, if you could just not repeat sit, 60 times in three seconds will be golden. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like today I had the two lab owners come for their mid, it's 10 days, so five days in mid lesson, I guess, sure. before they go home. And, um, you know, I'm taking the leash, I'm showing them what to do. Of course, years of practice, it looks flawless hand it to them, and they're just, like, all over the place with the leash. It's like... Well, it's like they're learning a brand new skill for the first time. They're learning a brand new skill. And to us, we've seen it, like, 70,000 times. So it's really also, I actually, one of the things I have to try really hard to do is not nitpick everything all at the first time they take the leash, but pick little things and go, okay, you need to change this one aspect. And then when they get that one part down, then I can actually point out the other part that's wrong, and we fix that, too. And so it's like a little bit of a process there to kind of self-filter because you like you and I have such the muscle memory and we have the vision to just know exactly where it's kind of where the breaks and the chains are. It's kind of hard to not 
say them all at once, but it is. Somebody's learning a brand new skill in front of you for the first time, so you have to teach them in those little baby steps. That's why I and use it's... my humor. Yep, <laughs> see? I deflect everything with I humor. deflect everything with my humor. I'm just like, what are you doing? What is that? <laughs> but it's something as simple as leash skills that is oh, yeah. where we have to start with people in order to get them to the end result of this. If you, if you have an aggressive dog, we're starting with leash skills. We're not even talking about the aggressive part of your dog yet and what to do in those aspects and what to do when that happens. We have to first address the little tiny things and build up your skills over time in order for you to be able to be capable of helping your dog and managing your dog in other situations. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. I mean, going back to when I was talking about how I got started, I'd say from 2010 to maybe 2015, um, I worked for a bunch of different places like the kinetic canine or should I say pack the balance was still in the picture yeah but I worked for other dog companies that didn't care that I did it on the side doing like daycare I picked a lot of the stuff that was just like daycares where it was just me and the dogs yeah because I was way more interested in the time with the dogs and it wasn't until after 2015 I realized this is a human business and at the time, I had really poor people skills, <laughs> which is why most people that work with animals get involved with animals to begin with. True, true. But then you kind of learn the lesson that it has nothing to do with the animals. So I had to take a whole life detour. <laughs> I managed a gym. I mean, I, go. Still, I still worked with clients on the side, but it was a lot less than before. It was very picky of who I worked with, and it was a lot of referral-based. Like, I took my website down. It was all word of mouth. Okay. Um, And at the end of the day, I had to, like, manage a gym and work for a pharmacy. And just, like, all these people issues were very confrontational jobs. Okay. And I got so much better at... Communicating? Communicating with people, and then coaching people and diffusing situations. And then finally, I felt comfortable enough to go back and be like, okay, I'm not going to be a dog trainer. I'm going to coach people. I'm going to canine coach people. <laughs> There's a plug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear that a lot. Like a lot of the trainers that I know in my network. And yes, there is a big truck backing up near us. So if you hear beeping, that's what's going on. Backing up. <laughs> SpongeBob reference number one. We should count how many you do during the show. <laughs> You'll be able to keep up. Um, but yeah, I know a lot of trainers who I talk to, they always say that one of the things that they struggle with the most as a dog trainer is the communication skills aspect or the people skills aspect of being a dog trainer because it really does boil down to how well can you effectively communicate and coach a person on what they need to be doing with their dog. I think, like, for me, the dog training stuff actually is the harder of the two of those things. I know a lot of dog trainers who are like, yeah, I just do the training very naturally. Like, I don't think about it. I just know what to do with the dog. I know how to read the dog. I need, I know where my body should be, where my leash should be, whatever, all of those aspects. And they can do that very fluidly. But then when it comes time to explain it to the client, they have a really hard time because they've done it so fluidly without thinking that's, that's, that it makes it yeah. really hard to then actually translate to the client like what needs to be done. That was 100% me in the beginning. Yeah, okay. Because I would take the leash and if I was doing off-leash training, it's like I have the leash, I have the remote, I have food. 
those are three things in my two hands. Yeah. That I have have learned to navigate so seamlessly. Right. And it wasn't until like a couple months ago, I realized from so many owners, you know, that I've been going through that I've been coaching on the same stuff that I just take the leash and do it. And then I think to myself, I just did that and didn't even think about it because I've been doing it so long. But I actually had to stop and think about what I actually just did. So then you could explain so it. So I could explain it. Yeah. See, well, what's funny, though, because I am, like, the reverse. So I have, or I don't want to toot my own horn, but I have really good, in my opinion, people skills. I went to college for English and communications. Those are my two degrees. So, <laughs> like, words? I got that. Communicating? I got, I got that. But dog training, I have to really focus and pay attention to what I'm doing, which makes it then, actually, I feel, I think it makes it easier for me to then translate to the client what they need to do because I actually have to focus so hard on all of my mechanics that I'm very conscious of my mechanics. But then my ability to communicate makes it easy for me to translate. My struggle is being able to learn new mechanics and learn new skills and be a better dog trainer, which to other people, other dog trainers that I know, that's the easy part to them. That's so not I true. feel like I'm like a bellac sheep, but that's not, that's not true in my opinion because okay. everybody started somewhere. So if I could go back in time, I would do it the way that you're doing it. So I would rather start with the people skills and learn the dog training after Secondly. the fact. Yeah. Then figure out the dog training and then feel like a damn failure because I can take their dog and do all this stuff, but it doesn't freaking matter what I can do. It matters what they can do. Right. And then not being able to like look somebody in the eye and be like, well, you need to do this or like they're doing something wrong and having this anxiety about speaking up because I was younger at the time and I'm speaking to people who are older than me. Correct. Yeah. And I'm feeling intimidated that I'm telling my elders what to do. Right. Like as stupid as that sounds, like I struggled so bad with it. And when I first started training, I started again, I had to go through ABC. So it was like I had a clicker. I had gentle leaders. I had, you know, food and I had to go through capturing behaviors, trick training, stuff like that. So then when I moved on to the prong collar, that took me a while to get the mechanics too. Right. Because even though I could put the dog on a prong and flawlessly work through getting the dog into a heel, it took me a while to figure out how to properly do the mechanics of the collar to help reactivity yeah that's a whole other that's just the whole, whole other area, whole other area. obedience with the prong collar is not the same yeah. as behavior mod with the then, prong collar. then you're getting into slip lead with a remote collar and working a remote collar at like when you get when you get further along with being good at it and you've done it for years it's it's almost an extension of your hand. Right. But when you're first When you starting, first put that remote in your hand, which we've seen when we put it in an owner's hand for the first time, and there's like six buttons on it. <laughs> well, no, well, for me, there's like three. Well, no, I know. It just depends <laughs> on the remote. But even, but even the ones that you use, there's like buttons on the back of it. But trying to like reel a dog in and hold a button and then also turn up the number while reeling in the dog, but then get the dog into a sit... And then mark and reward. And then mark and reward. <laughs> that lot. took me a hot minute to yeah. get, like, I it's had a lot. lot of practice. And I went to a lot of seminars where the trainers called my ass out and was like, you're doing this wrong. You're right. doing that wrong. And I'm right. like, thank you. So I would say any trainer that says it comes naturally, I feel like they forget 
when they first started. That could be. Because they've been doing it so long. Like, I'm at 12 years now total. Right. So I've been doing it so long that, to me, it comes so naturally that I forget the time when it didn't. Yeah. But if I'm going to sit here and really think about it, yeah, I struggled when I forgot my first remote collar. Yeah, well, I forget that, like, my experience as a dog trainer is about three-ish years compared to your 12. So it's a drastic difference in terms of amount of time working and look amount of cases even put it that way the amount of dogs that you probably worked compared to the amount of dogs that I've probably worked I'm very new and green to stuff in comparison to you so to me like it's it it's a big contrast the difference between me doing something fluidly and knowing it in and out and not even being able to explain it to a client because I do it so naturally because I'm still in that realm right now of I have to actually focus on my mechanics. I don't have to focus on them. Like, I'm not standing there going, okay, apply this many pounds of pressure to the leash. <laughs> but I do have to be a little bit more conscious that I would say somebody who's been training for a lot longer, a lot of the stuff just becomes supernatural. Yeah. You just do it so many times. It's like getting in your car and putting on, like, most people don't think, okay, I'm in my car. I have to put on my seatbelt now. Right. It's like your first your first thing you do when you get in, or at least it should be, (laughs) click it or tick it. (laughs) My dad, this is a fun side story. It's not really, but I'm going to tell it anyway. My dad, his routine of getting into his car, he gets into his car, he turns it on, he pulls out, and he doesn't attempt putting the seatbelt on until he's about to pull out of our driveway onto the road. has never mattered where we lived or anything like that. He cannot rewire his steps of putting the seatbelt on before doing any of the other things. And I can't tell you how many times in my childhood my mom has been in the car and been like, put your seatbelt on. And he's like, I'm getting there. I'm getting to it. But it's like, it's just a habit chain. He's like, no, I get in the car. I sit down. I turn the car on. I put it in drive. I start going. And only when I start going do I then get to fumble with my one hand on the steering wheel and my other hand trying to put the seatbelt on. Well, we were talking about... You know, our parents' generation were just letting dogs out. My dad did the same exact, does the same exact thing. He does. It's like he'd be driving down the road and he's like fumbling with. Yeah, his why do they do belt. that? Maybe it's a dad thing. I don't it's know. It's a dad thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting to it. Hold on. It's so much harder to put your seatbelt on when you're trying to steer your car. I don't know why you just don't put your seatbelt on when you get in the car. And he could be like ten miles down the road, and I'd be like, "Are you gonna put your seatbelt on?" And then you oh, don't have yeah. to listen to the dinging. Well, back... Because that's what my dad would do. He'd when do, I was well, a kid, okay. though, we didn't, didn't have the dinging. No, you there was no ding You didn't have the dinging. You just got in your damn car. I mean, some of the cars didn't even have seatbelts in the back seats. True, true, true. So it's like he'd get in the car and he'd just be going. It's like, are you going to put your seatbelt on? And my dad like, would always yell at the ding, which would make me laugh. Because I'm like, if you just changed your habits, you, then you wouldn't have to listen to the ding yeah, go yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> He'd be like, I know, I'm getting there, I'm getting to it, or something like that. Or like, yeah, 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 I heard ya. And it's like, you could just change it. You could just change it, Dad, and then it would solve your problem, you know? (laughs) Funny topic. Side topic, sorry. But getting back to what we were talking about with the two types of clients that you serve. You do mainly behavior modification, and then the ones that you actually enjoy the most... Are the off leash ones? I don't want to. I don't want to put it that way. I don't want to shit on the behavior mods. I know you like them, but when you compare my niche, we'll call it my niche. My preferred niche is I enjoy off leash recall. Okay. And off leash 
obedience in general. Okay. Recall's probably the most fun, and it's probably the most sought after. Yeah. If you had to get technical about, like, what owners really want. Even though there's more aspects to the off-leash recall than just doing that, but I'd call it my niche. I mean, there's so many other things that, you know... I work with, you know, the behavioral mods and private lessons. And every so often I'll get a puppy. I usually send puppies your way. Yeah. Um, I love my puppies. But depending on <laughs> where they're located. Yeah. If, if sometimes I don't me, take them if they're right yeah. near you. Yeah. If they're near me and, you know, especially if they're like German Shepherd because I love my German you Shepherds. Because you love because of Shimani. I'll take them. Um, but for the most part, if I could do like all off-leash training with no behavioral mod, I would. But there's a very limited... Uh, selection of trainers in my area for behavior mod there's not a lot of people who can successfully yeah, no, I accomplish agree. it yeah so I'm, I'm happy to help in that sense but I mean every trainer has their their preferred like this is the most fun for me right so and I would say it's off-leash training okay okay and so for off-leash training maybe we talk on that a little bit and we kind of run the gamut on it since that's what you like so for off-leash training where, if you were a client, or if you were somebody who had a dog, and you wanted your dog to be off-leash trained, what are some things that you could tell them to do before they even hire the trainer to help set their dog up for success to then work off-leash training with a trainer? Like, is there anything that you wish that your clients did in advance that would actually make the training easier? Oh, yeah. Um, so many people don't start on a leash. Okay. They let their dog out and then get into this argument with them in the yard, like, come on, let's go, like, come on in, like, whatever. Yeah. Just basically making the word come so invaluable to right. the dog. Okay. Like, it's just mucked up. If you're going to ask them to come, then they need to come. So, uh, even if it's a six-foot leash or a long line, I don't care. Make it a way so that you can get your dog back to you if they blow you off. Right. Beacons, like, hold them accountable at least a little bit. Even if they don't know come that well, mm -hmm. then that means they shouldn't even be off the leash. Right. Because that's that's a liability that's them going to get hurt right. in some weird, obscure, one-in-a-thousand moment that nobody thinks is ever going to happen to them. I mean, the other thing, too, is just it's not that hard to reward your dog for naturally coming back to you, yeah, too. Yeah, that's where, I, that's where I always start with people, too, where I'm like, your dog comes over to you at random times during the day, which are all moments when you could either bust out a toy or grab a treat or get up and go grab a treat for all I care and give it to your dog. It still would be impactful and your dog would think, coming back to my owner pays. You become relevant to actually Correct. pay attention to you and come back to you. The first three months that I had Cinder, and everybody is so flabbergasted when I tell them this for some reason. Okay. The first three months I had him, he had a leash attached to him at all times, and we did not do a single obedience command. My dad's like, oh, your dog trainer, you had this dog three months, he doesn't know sit. I said, because I don't care about sit. Right now. I'm taking him out into the public with the hatch open in my car and letting him watch the world go by, and if he looks at me, I'm not gonna say anything, I'm just gonna give him a treat. Mm -hmm. I want to be relevant. Right. If I'm walking and he's on like a long line or something and he like looks back and comes back to me, I give him a treat. Yeah. It's like pay attention to me. Right. So I wish more people would do that. But if above all else, I wish they would just put some type of leash or long line on their dog if they're going to be outside. Yeah. So the dog can't 
practice and learn that well, it's yeah. okay to blow you off when you are trying to get the dog to come back to you. Yeah, it becomes a game when you can't catch me. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I always say, too, like, where we typically have to start, or at least where I like to start, because we probably train our off-leash recall different sequentially. Like, we get to the same place, and we, I'm pretty sure we hit all of the same major points. We might do them in different order, but... um, Whatever works. Whatever works. But what I always like to start with, I need or you need, really, client, you need your dog to have a reason to want to come back to you. Which is pretty much where you just said. We need the dog to know that you're relevant and it pays to come back or even just be around my owner in the first place. If everything else out there in the world is way more rewarding to your dog than you are, then it's gonna, you're going to have a hell of a time getting that dog to want to come back to you or just to come back to you when you call it and you know make, ask it to come back to you. It's going to go way smoother if you've already done the work of showing your dog that you're worth it, like you, you are a benefactor, you give it <laughs> to you the exist. dog. <laughs> you give to the dog. It's fun to be around you. You give food, you give attention, you give toys, you play with your dog, like you're actually important to your dog's life, that's so much easier to work a dog on recall and off-leash recall when they already have that basis of a foundation set with the relationship between them and the owner than it is for somebody who's like, yeah, I live with my dog, like my dog's around, but I let my dog out in the yard and like that's its blow-off steam time and I'm not, you know, I'm not a part of that or whatever. You only become a part of it when you're ready to call the dog in and that's game over. Right. And then you don't actually end up becoming something that your dog wants to be around or wants to see because you're always the fun sucker. (laughs) Well, the biggest thing when teaching recall that I do is recall dogs to the owner, reward them, and then release them back to do exactly what they were Mm -hmm. doing. I don't advocate dog parks. I hate them, but I always see videos of people calling their dog and their dogs just like ignoring them and then or they go up to their dog to like clip the leash and the dog's like screw you and yeah, takes and off like yeets out because saying come let's go like whatever is game over we're leaving the park right so why would they come to you exactly they don't want to you're you're literally asking them to come so you can take them out of the fun yep so if the only time you ever recall your dog is to leash them or to take them out of the fun then i mean i probably wouldn't listen to you either <laughs> you wouldn't want to screw you like a five more minutes in the ball pit yeah exactly yeah it's like when the parents come pick you up from the party and you don't want to leave like that's just a classic example like the the parents showing up is the indicator that the fun is over so if to your dog if you coming into the picture is the indicator that the fun is over then your recall is going to be shit because your dog's never going to want to come back to you because they know that that's you're ending any access to any fun or anything that they really like out in the real world. So that's like, that's a great point to bring up to say, when you recall your dog, what you should be practicing is actually just releasing them back to whatever it was that they were doing. Yep. So they don't pattern it as, oh, whenever she calls me or whenever he calls me, that's when everything stops and everything's over. Exactly. Exactly. Then that's why I do a lot of repetitions of come and release, come and release, come and release. I mean, you eventually when you get into the more advanced training, it's like you could you should even be able to call your dog off of another dog playing yeah, and then release them to go back to play. Right. So that would be like your long term goal, like 
let's say you do have a type A personality, social butterfly dog that absolutely does do well in a dog park. Not that I advocate, again, I'm gonna repeat it because I wanna drive that point home to people that it's basically like Canine Fight Club. <laughs> Everybody, really good everybody figures that their dog needs to be socialized, so everybody takes their dog that's not socialized to go get socialized, so they're socializing with dogs with no social skills. Correct. I feel like I just used the word socialize like six times. In the- <laughs> like, maybe that should be a whole other topic. It should. <laughs> Another episode. But, but the point that I'm coming to is back to my reference of dogs in the dog park being called only when they need to leave. Right. So if you put in your reps... And type A personality social butterfly who does good in the dog park and can go to them, you want a repetition eventually, the dog coming back to you and then going, okay, go back and play. Right. So that it's not game over, we're leaving the park. Right. But, okay, so let's talk about, because you just talked about reps. Yeah. So let's talk about what that looks like for training or recall, because I've had um, conversations with clients where their expectations, like, the way that I run my training is I go to their house, as you know, and then we do all the training there in person. And then there's time away from me, usually like a week or two weeks. And then I come back and we pick up on where they have progressed because they've done their homework, hopefully. And then we that's how we progress. So it's a little bit different from you versus a board and train. It's a little it's a little similar because yeah. I also go to people's houses. OK, Um, the board and trains, you know, whether it's a board and train or it's with the client at their house, we start in a familiar area, whether it's my property, their property, and we start on leash there. From then, we would all progress in each situation to some type of public park. Right. And eventually maybe a hiking trail, something like that. But like a... So I do the same thing, and I find myself having this conversation a lot with clients. This is where I was going with, with the reps thing. Where, um, because a lot of my training sessions are set up at the client's house, they end up developing an expectation that when we work on recall, we will be training that to completion at their house or in their neighborhood or something like that. Um, And so I often have to have conversations with them where I'm saying, when we do a recall, or my rule book for doing a recall is any circumstance under which you want your dog to be able to recall back to you from, you had to have trained that situation already, which means you can't do it entirely at your house. You have to go out and practice and do a lot of things. So I often have a lot of um, conversations where I'm setting expectations with clients of even though I come to your house once every two weeks or once a week and we drill recall and maybe we'll meet at a park and we'll drill recall, in order for your dog to be off-leash recall trained, you have to, while I'm not there, go to those places and put your dog in the exact situations where you want your dog to come back to you when you call them, which is where I was going with the reps thing. You got to get your reps in for sure. Like we need lots of reps total, like hundreds of reps of calling your dog back to you. But also we need to have a ton of situations where your dog has had experience understanding that yeah, when the mailman goes by, I have to come back when my mom calls me. Or when I see the dog walking by on the street, I have to come back to my dad when my dad calls me. And every single one of the situations where you think you probably are going to have to use a recall, you have to have trained it. And I'm not going to be there for all of those the way that my 
training uh, programs are set up. So it acts, it asks a lot of my clients to put in the work and go out and do all this practice without me being there. But if they want that end result, that's what you have to get done. The biggest problem that I think I run into is they go way too fast. Okay. So if they have a dog that's very smart and catches on very quickly, they'll either at home, they'll either drop the long line or unclip the leash super quick. Okay. You need to be holding that leash for probably months and months and months. Yeah. That's another thing that I have to set expectations with too. Exactly. I tell them all the time, like my other number big rule with training a recall is you are not allowed to recall your dog unless your dog is attached to a leash. Needs to get them back. And you are holding the other end of that leash or it's in like one foot of you or something like that so you can make it happen. I mean, don't get me wrong. If the dog's doing very, very well in their own fenced-in backyard and you have a 100-foot long line, okay, maybe within the week that I don't see you, I'll tell you, okay, make sure that it's dragging straight out so that you can step on it Mm -hmm. or pick it up. But the biggest thing that I think people don't realize is dogs think in pictures So just because your dog might start to develop a really solid recall at home, even around distractions, I mean, I'll even say maybe even distractions, right? Right. You bring them to the park and that's a whole different picture. Yeah, suddenly the picture is completely different. So you actually have to go backwards and retrain recall from scratch. In the new place. Each new place you go until you feel that your dog has generalized recall. And when do you unclip the leash? I'm not going to answer that question. That's up to when the owner feels comfortable doing it. But they've also had massive success getting their dog back in a bunch of different situations, a bunch of different events that have happened. Yep. Dogs, people, wildlife, groups of people, bicycles, an off-leash dog that might be running towards them. You know, the most, the situations that we don't really think about. Yeah. Because the dog has to learn to generalize everything under different thresholds of stress and under different thresholds of arousal. So just because there's a dog on the other side of a fence somewhere or in a park somewhere that's running around barking, playing with its owner, catching a frisbee, and your dog gets super aroused and wants to go butt into that, you can't expect them to recall off of that if they've never done that before. Correct. So my job is to do the best that I can to take them different places and set up those situations, whether it's with people in the park that are just there with my own dog, whatever, and make it so that they're practicing these things that we don't think of when we take our dogs out in public. Right, right. Yeah, and it's just showing them that picture, all of those different pictures, the same, like, it's funny because like you have your own like language set of language that you use with your client and I have my my own set of language that I use with my client mine was we have to train under every situation under which you want your dog to recall yours is you have to show them every picture in which you want them to recall it's the same conversation we're having the same conversation but we use different words but it's the same thing but yeah it's I think a lot of times people just don't understand the amount of effort and work that goes into training a really bomb-proof solid recall and you made the point of saying too that you know you're not going to be the one that tells the client you can unclip 
the leash now and do recalls off leash, which is where we're building to. But um, my language is a little bit different from yours, but it's the same thing. I say to owners, I'm not gonna tell you, once again, I'm not gonna tell you when to take the leash off. You're gonna tell me when was the last time you had to use the leash to recall your dog. And if you can't honestly remember, or if it was like two weeks ago, under a weird circumstance, that was the last time you used the leash while you were practicing, your dog probably is ready for the leash to come off. It's still your call because it's your dog. But that's, I mean, that's kind of how I frame it with, for my clients is, hey, can you actually remember the last time that you had to use the leash to make it happen after you called your dog? If you can't, or if it was 50 reps ago, then your dog's probably at the point where they can be off leash now. But it's not until that point. From the whole point from we start training off leash recall up until that moment where I'm like, hey, do you remember the last time you used the leash? The dog's on leash the entire time we're training a recall. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't expect either when they do off leash. They're so excited to do the off leash. Yeah. And I mean, don't get me wrong, it is a pain in the ass to have your dog drag a hundred foot leash. Yeah, it is. It gets stuck under sticks and rocks and corners and fences and it's like you're constantly chasing it. I mean, Unfortunately, like the only place that I would probably use a retractable leash is probably if I was doing some type of off-leash recall for hiking. Mm -hmm. But I feel like 16, it only goes to 16 feet, maybe 18 feet. Sometimes you can buy 30 foot ones, but they're hard to find. I haven't been able to find one. I yeah, they're hard to find. But I, mean, I don't have one. <laughs> that so can, there's evidence that of it could enough. solve the the whole like, but the leash gets stuck on everything type right, of thing. Right. But there, people are just so fast about it. Because you're going to need that leash when you need that leash. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's still an animal and it makes mistakes. Correct. Yeah. So you have to be pretty damn confident that your dog has recalled off of something that would be like your dog's major trigger point. Yeah. So, for example, I'm going to use your one client that literally recalled her dog oh, Anna. when there was a bear in the woods. No, it was a Deer. I thought it was I, a bear. She said it was a full-on oh, black bear. Oh, two situations. Oh. One was a bear. <laughs> One was other, a bear. The other time was a deer. But they live really, like, they live out in the middle of the woods. So, yeah. like, off-leash was something that they were like, no, we really need our dog to be off-leash trained because they have wildlife that just comes strolling through their backyard, essentially. And, yeah, I think she had one case it was a deer and the other time yeah it was a bear i think for the bear she was inside the house and anna was outside the house because they just have property so they just yeah. leave her outside and she saw the bear and called anna from the kitchen window it's like anna come and and anna did come back thank god because exactly. she would have gotten mauled by a bear exactly and i mean so for example now we can't set that situation up <laughs> no. I'm not going to bring a bear into the picture while you, we're doing our training. I mean, we could contact the local circuses and we could try to rent a bear on a unicycle. We could. We probably should do that. But another example would be one of the Swiss mountain dogs that I'm working with right now. The ultimate chase for this dog is birds. We've worked on recall off of people. We've worked on recall off of dogs. But this dog is obsessed with chasing birds. Mm-hmm. So we went to a big open field. There was like a big, huge swarm of blackbirds. She took off. We called her. She still had the long line. Yep. And we just did reps. Yep. So if your dog's biggest trigger in the world is birds and we practice off of that and you can get your dog to recall off birds, nine out of ten times it's say your dog's going to come back. Yeah. 
So you're getting closer to the point of being able to say, okay, I can probably take off this leash. Mm -hmm. But the other point that I'm going to put in too is people are so quick to, not only are they so quick to get off the leash, but they're so quick to want to get off the collar. Okay. So my biggest thing with owners is if their dog already knows recall. Yep. To some extent. Okay. They'll say, come, and then they'll go, I didn't even use the remote that time. Okay. Wait, let's back up because we need to clarify for some listeners. Yeah. When we, when Amber and I do off-leash recall training, we use an electric collar. We use an e-collar. We use e-collar technology specifically, but I just had to sub that in there to make sense for you saying we use the we use the collar or get off the collar that's the that's a device that we use depends on who you go to what tool your dog will be on but for most cases if you're going to do off-leash training you're going to be working with electric collars so we use the e-collar but anyway back to your point yep because the collar is your insurance policy when that leash is off yep um so they want to get off the tools in general, whether it's the leash or the remote collar or whatever. Yep. Just in general, they're so quick to be like, all right, I don't need this anymore. So Because they haven't had to use it. Because they haven't had to use it. And we said when you don't have to, or at least when I say when you don't have to use the long line, you don't need it clipped to your dog anymore. If you're not using, which ergo, logic states, well, if I'm not using the e-collar anymore, then why do I need that on my dog? For your insurance policy. There you go. Okay. Because your dog's a living creature that makes decisions. And makes mistakes. And may make a wrong decision one in a thousand times. So Cinder is fully off-leash trained. Cinder is my personal dog, as I've said before. And the amount of times that I have to touch the remote in a day is maybe like once, if that. Sometimes I'll go days without having to touch it, but it's my insurance policy that in an emergency, I can get him back. Right. And I will never take it off of him. No, me neither. Like, so. Loki is, his recall is not 100% because of his reactivity. We haven't been able to work recall off of the triggers that I, or I shouldn't say triggers, but um, I haven't shown him all the pictures yet. I haven't worked through all the situations yet because yeah. of his reactivity. So if he's outside, he's either wearing an e-collar or he's still attached to a leash that's either back tied to something or I'm holding it or something like that. But he's never outside naked. That yeah. never happens. I will never put my dog's performance in the way of his life. No. I will never bet his life on his performance. I guess I could say that the other way too. Yeah. But... I guess what I'm trying to get at is if they're not doing their dog justice by not getting in the remote collar reps. So if you say come and your dog comes to you and you're like, I didn't even use the remote collar in the beginning of the training. Right. They have no idea when you do use it. They haven't gotten enough practice of like, what is this feeling? Yeah. What's this feeling? How mean? do what I should shut I, it off? What should I do when this feeling happens? So it's the same thing when you get closer to being able to take the leash off, you're no longer nagging the dog to shut off pressure. You're eventually going to add in the word no. Right. And you're going to hold the dog accountable. So you've put them in all these situations where you can help them, teach them, guide them if they need it, set them up to succeed, but then eventually life isn't going to set them up to succeed. Right. So we need to put them in those situations and say, hey, you know recall, We've done tons of reps with recall, and I get that that bird is super enticing, but no, you come. have to come back. And yeah. a lot of people don't like it when they get to correction level because it's uncomfortable for their dog. But that one second in the span of 24 hours 
of being uncomfortable mm -hmm. is going to save your dog's life mm -hmm. and give your dog more freedom. Yep. So you're not being what I guess the word is fair to your dog by not giving them the repetitions, even if they're doing really great. Right. You still need to teach them what the collar means. Yep. Even if they're doing really great. I mean, even we can go back to my client example of Anna. When we got to the point where she was, she had all her reps in, she understood what the sensation of the collar meant. And so what I mean by that is when the collar was activated and the stimulation was going into her uh, muscle, she understood that meant, oh, I should go back to my owner. If I do that, the stimulation will stop. I will not be getting stimmed in the, the muscle neck, whatever. Um, so she understood what the collar sensation meant and how, what situations under which it would come on and how she can get it to stop and turn off. So we've done all the reps of doing that. We've worked her through all kinds of situations around other dogs, out of play with other dogs. She played with Cinder and we worked on recall out of play with Cinder. And it was only under those really intense moments of play did we finally get to the point where we were going to use the collar at a level where it would be considered a correction and she would perceive it as something that was uncomfortable and unpleasant. Now you're not going to be doing your dog any injustice if you use that sparingly. It's effective if you're correcting your dog only a couple times. Like if you're going to use the collar as a correction and you keep having to use it at a correction level really, really high, that means you went way too far, yes. way too fast with your training. Yep. So with Anna, when we got to that point with her, her owner used a correction level on Anna, I think maybe, I don't wanna like misquote, but I think a, anywhere from three to four different instances she had to use it at, she turned the collar up to a higher number, Anna felt it at a higher level, she was like, that's unpleasant, I don't like that. And she stuck with her owner. And then she stuck with her owner, and her owner has not had to use that level since then, but the only way that that was fair, in my opinion, and effective, and just for the dog, was because we put in all the reps all the and all of yes. the, the recalls before that, we got the hundreds of reps in before that, so that by the time we needed to use it to show her, hey, actually, under really tough situations, and I know you really don't want to come back to me, I am going to make you come back to me, we only had to do that three or four times. Exactly. And that, to me, is ethical for the dog to understand that there is a higher level of consequence if you don't listen under these really intense circumstances, but the dog needs to have that learning moment at some point. You can reward all day long, but if it comes between a treat and a bird or a treat and an animal across traffic, yeah, you're gonna lose. Right. And you're right, you have to put in the work. You have to show them what it looks like. What I call it is finding the cracks in the training. So the dog might be really good in every situation, but if I know my dog is gonna break it down or if I know my dog's not gonna recall back to me, a lot of times for some reason, owners avoid those situations. Like if I drop the leash and pick it back up, they think that means that I'm gonna go. So they don't do that. They just stand there and hold the leash. But I'm gonna set up that situation where I'm gonna almost set the dog up to fail so I can have that conversation with them 
that even if this happens, you still have to stay in a down or you still have to come to me. So it's almost a disservice not to find the cracks in the training. Granted, you've done all your other work first. Right. So all of the training that leads up to that so that it's fair. Right. Well, it's not even, I mean, I know a lot of people use the word, oh, we, we need to set the dog up to fail in order to show them what's correct. But it's not even that you're really setting the dog up to fail. You're setting them up to, to know the difference between what is correct and what is a mistake. Like, they're not necessarily failing. They're making a mistake. And so... To learn from it. To learn from it, yeah. So you need them to make the mistake in order for them, in order for you to then show them, hey, that was a mistake. They don't understand that it's a mistake until we show until them show that them. it is. So here's an example. Everybody in public comes up to people's dogs and they're like, oh, you're such a cute yeah. dog, blah, 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 right? So if I put a client's dog into a down and practice through training, oh, you're such a cute puppy, blah, and they break, and I'm like, nope. Correct, down. Right. After they've learned down, of course. I have to reiterate that. After they've known down and it's We've done all the, it's fair. All the reps. We've done all the priming, yep. right? Yep. A lot of times owners feel really bad correcting their dog when they're the ones that made their dog get up. Right. Okay, I see where you're going. However, yeah. in the real world, when you're trying to keep your dog in a down and some stranger is baby talking your dog and then you correct your dog for getting up, I'd say that that's unfair. Because you never told them or taught them that that would have been a mistake. That that would have been a mistake. Right. So I want to do it under controlled, controlled chaos, I guess, or a controlled environment where I'm setting up the dog. And I, I know you said it's it's more of a mistake, but I'm just going to say setting yeah, the dog up used, to fail. Yeah, I'm right. used to saying that. Yeah, you're saying it. So setting them up to make a mistake or setting them up to break command and then helping and guiding them back to what they should be doing. So that when I go out in public and something happens, my dog has been primed to know what to do and I'm more successful because of it. I mean, that's like the basis of teaching an off-leash recall is repetitively putting your dog in a situation where they're going to make a mistake and showing them, hey, Loki, this is not your time. (laughs) Loki, would you like to comment? Loki, this is our time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But setting your dog up in a situation where they're going to make a mistake and showing them that you still have to come back to me. That's basically teaching an off-leash oh, recall. It's having them no. Yeah, it's having them make a mistake over and over and over and over again under a variety of different circumstances. Yeah. It's showing them all of those different pictures and teaching them that it would be a mistake in this picture or under this situation for you to not come back to me when I call you. Now, Here's depending what you on, do instead. Right. And depending on where you are in your journey of teaching an off-leash recall, you're either using a long line at that point to make the mistake go away and show them the correct answer. You're maybe using an e-collar at that point to show them the correct answer and let them know that that was a mistake. Maybe we're at the total end goal point of we're using one or two corrections now to show them that, hey, that's off the table. I know that you know this, that's a mistake, you're not allowed to do that. But pretty much the entire time you're teaching or training an off-leash recall, you're setting the dog up to make mistakes over and over and over again so that you can show them how to be correct. Yeah. So you're going to help them and guide them first and show them what to do. So you're doing all of that before you even get to correction. Yeah. So going back to my comment about, oh, you're just a cute dog. In the beginning, they don't know any better, so I'm going to guide them back into a down. But eventually I'm going to up leash. the ante. Yeah, yeah with, with the, the leash. leash. But eventually, I'm going to up the ante and I'm going to do it or I'm going to have a new person do it. Yep. And when we're actually at correction level, then it's fair for me to say no. Right. So 
it's just, you just have to go through so much work. And I think that's the kind of the point that you and I are getting at here yeah. is there's so much involved and there's so many aspects and minute details that are overlooked a lot. But the biggest thing too is of course, keep the leash on for the immediate future. Pretty much for the whole thing. Yeah. Like keep the leash on for the whole training. Well, for like, the whole training. Like, the whole even thing. when your training is completed, you still want to take your dog through a gauntlet of trial. Oh, yeah. You still want, so it's the immediate future from the beginning of training onward to who knows when, X date, whatever, that dog is having that long line on. Do not get rid of your long line. <laughs> Don't do it. Are you begging? I am like you're begging you. <laughs> So you have a way to get your dog back and help them in a situation when they're confused. Right. Because they're just making a mistake because they're confused. And the easier way to show them what's correct, especially when we're teaching teaching a new behavior or when we're talking about a recall, the easiest way to show them how to do it correctly is to use a long line. Because you can literally move guide them, them back into the direction that you want them to go or guide them into a sit if that's what you were working on. Yeah. Whatever. The leash is the easiest way to show them that they're correct. The e-collar is actually the hardest way to show them that they're correct because there's no... Um, well, the stim goes off, but... But there's no, like, there's no way directional direct, input. Yeah. There's no, like... Well, you could get complicated. Mm -hmm. You could do down with the fox on the back of the head. You could do sit yes. with the fox under. Yeah. But unless you've practiced that with the leash on... It still wouldn't matter. It still wouldn't, it wouldn't matter. matter. But, like, when the sensation... Yeah, so the point is, like, when the sensation goes on... The, the sensation doesn't give the dog any input as to where they should be going or how they should be moving. It's just a sensation. A leash actually moves them into whatever the correct position or behavior looks like. So keeping the long line on is actually the best way to help you through this entire process because every time your dog makes a mistake, you can literally show them the correct answer by moving them yourself using the leash or the long line. It's oh, really stuck. hard to show them the correct answer by just stimming them because they're like, well, I don't know what to do. This is just I'm happening. <laughs> I'm confused. I need your help. Right. So and the only way we can help them is using the leash or using yeah. the long line. Yeah. yeah. And you even keep the, you keep like Cinder's leash on when he's out in public too, right? Like when. Yeah. Yep. Because I've run into it a few times where. I've had him in an off-leash down, um, and as I'm working with a client, people will come through and they'll be like, can we walk by? And I'm like, oh yeah, 100%. But then there's a couple times where like people have stopped and been like, well, can you don't have a leash. And I'm like, oh, and like, you know, what you should do in that situation for anybody that is at the point when their dog is off-leash, off, off, is off -leash, and even if you know that your dog's not gonna move or your dog's gonna come back to you, it's just courtesy. If you're walking by another person with a dog, grab the handle of the leash. Grab, even if you have a, like a tab, like a short, like four inch tab on your dog, pick it up, show people like, hey, I got my dog. And then when you walk past them, drop it again. Right. Or step on the leash when they're in a down, just, or pick it up. Just show people like, hey, you don't know my dog training story. You don't know my dog's train. So many people have off-leash dogs that people get rushed and like they get nervous because of their dog. Right. Just be courteous. Keep your dog in a radius of you. If people are coming to go do something with their dog, make some space for them. 
you don't know if they're afraid of dogs or if their dog's been attacked yeah, or whatever. Yeah, that's the other just, thing, too. It's yeah. like, you don't know how people feel about dogs. Yeah. And so even when your dog's off leash trained, so I tell my clients the same thing. Even when your dog's off leash trained, always have something attached to them so that when you do pass people or when people come within a general vicinity of you that's close enough that they may be a little wary or uncomfortable yeah. and because they just don't know your dog and don't know that it is trained, it's just common courtesy and just pick up the leash or grab the tab or do something to put them at ease it's not gonna like depreciate your training or like it, it, like your yeah. dog is still really cool for being yeah, off leash trained. Exactly. You're just being kind and courteous to other people and showing them a little bit of like respect and also showing them that if something were to arise, even though you know it wouldn't, they feel a lot safer because you're holding the leash or you're holding the tab or something like that. Yeah, it's always just like nice courtesy yeah. to do that. I started putting a a working so. Cinder is actually my service dog for medical alert. So he does wear, you know, the full harness with the cape and the big handle loop. But I actually got him one of those regular, like, slip-on harnesses. And it says, I'm working. Yeah. You know, don't pet me, whatever. But it has one of the regular little handles on the back, kind of like the one that Loki has with his little handle tab yes. thing that you can kind of grab. Yeah, you can just grab the handle on the back of the so harness. So I started using yeah. that. Um, and he does seem to know the difference between his working harness for service work and then his working harness for when I'm with clients. So yep. that hasn't gotten in the way of anything, but it's like, I can just grab the little handle and just be like, Hey, I got my dog. Like, right. So just something, just something to show, like I'm being considerate of you and your dog's face, whatever. Yeah. It just makes other people feel more comfortable. And then, you know, everything goes hunky dory and you pass by and there's no like, you know, weird feelings. You don't have to end up engaging in, you know, some conversation where they're like, hey, is your dog cool or not? And then you have to explain everything. It's just, just pick the leash up <laughs> and go on your way. Or if your dog's in the down, just pick the leash up or step on the leash or do something like that so that you, people feel fine. You hear the story constantly. My dog's dog reactive because he got attacked by an off-leash dog. Right. And a lot of people, I'm realizing now more than ever for some reason how many people are actually afraid of dogs. There are a lot. I've never noticed that until, I don't know, recently. It's like you, you can tell by people's body language that they're scared. Well, it's not even, I mean, so, so some people definitely have had, like, circumstances for sure, like, in their childhood, like, they got attacked by a dog, especially because, like we just talked about, the generation prior to ours. I make a joke because when I was a kid, <laughs> I got bit in the face by a dog. And my parents were like, that's it. She's going to be afraid of dogs. It's like, oh, no, she gets bit for a living now. <laughs> anyway. But, yeah, anyway. <laughs> but, yes, there's there's plenty of people that have gotten bit by dogs. So, yeah, we have, like, our parents' generation, like we talked about earlier, where a lot of the dogs were, like, left to their own devices during the day. And I can't – I don't have any statistics on it. But there are people who, in childhood, they were attacked by a dog or something. So there are certainly – people now as adults that are fearful of dogs but there's also just like that class of people where they just didn't grow up around a dog or near a dog or no one they knew had a dog or big dogs or big do yeah and they're just uncomfortable around dogs because they're just not familiar with them and so you have those people that also just are moseying about in the park too or doing their business so it's just common courtesy to just pick the leash up when you're gonna be near somebody or anything like that, so that they feel more comfortable and they can be at ease, even sure though you know your dog's fine. Yeah, it's so. just when you have an off-leash dog, when they're trained off-leash, it's just nice to make sure that you are still being courteous of where you are and who's around you, so that you make sure that not only is your dog safe, a, but so that other people don't feel you know nervous or anxious or anything like that because your dog's off-leash.
I know it sounds like we're beating this with a dead horse, but it's it's really just overlooked because it's something you don't think about when you're just walking through. Right. Well, it's because you know your dog. You're yeah. like, oh, my dog's fine. It's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to drift or go say hi to you or go say hi to your dog or sprint after that thing. Like, you know it's solid, but other people don't know that it's solid. No. But I mean, honestly, in the beginning, it wasn't something I thought about. Like, I'm just, I would see a person and I'm just like, I know, like you said, like, I know my dog's going to keep walking with me. I had to train myself to be like, there's a person I need to pick up the leash. Right. So if we can set people up to know that firsthand, that that's just what to do. And I, nobody's doing it maliciously. Like, no. I'm not going to pick up my leash. Right. But right. start thinking more about your what's going around in your environment. Yeah, so. really. All right. So we talked a lot mainly about off-leash stuff. And something that I do also need to emphasize for myself or my business is I don't typically, as you know, I don't typically advertise that I do off-leash training services. I personally am very choosy about the clients that I take on to do off-leash training. The reason why is because my opinion is I don't prefer to go through an entire program of off-leash training with a client whose lifestyle doesn't need to have their dog off-leash trained. So it's not something that I typically advertise. It is something that I offer, but it's very like lifestyle, client, and situational dependent. So that's some, so you guys listening, if you know my, my website and all that kind of stuff, you would not see anything on there that's about, oh, she offers an e-collar package or an off-leash training package or something like that. So if you want to get in touch with somebody about off-leash training and you want your dog off-leash trained, you certainly can ask me about it. But I just like to put that out there as I'm a lot, well, I should say I'm kind of picky <laughs> about who it is that I take on. Well, um, you're probably selective too about, you know, if you're going to take them on too, like, is it something the dog is immediately ready for? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's always, I mean, for, for the, any training, yeah. that's for the always situation, like, like with Anna, like, that was a grad, like, we did everything and then you graduated onto that because the dog was ready. Right. Yeah. With Anna, we did a whole, she went through my whole obedience training package. She worked through all of her obedience on leash to the point where it was wicked solid. And then we started our off leash training package. And that was a whole separate thing. Um, and for her case, they live, like I said, they live out in the woods, very rural. The dogs are outside. There's no fences or anything like that. Nobody comes on their property. They're very like secluded, but they do have wildlife. So it was important for their lifestyle for them to have a dog who was off-leash trained. So that's the type of client who I typically would work with to do off-leash stuff. I know for you, your services, who you work with and kind of how all of that goes. Let's run through that a little bit so that people know how to get in touch with you if they want to do off-leash training or just if they're in your area and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm selective, but I would say that the majority of owners know whether they want it or that they don't want it. Yeah. And the majority of them, yes. It's usually a lot of people that go hiking or people who own property are the ones that ask me about it. I've noticed that people who don't have that type of property or don't have a reason to put their dog off leash are a lot more nervous about doing it. Yeah. So for example, there was a dog that I did a board and train with for behavioral mod, Sasha. So she was the Belgian Malinois yeah. German Shepherd mix. Yeah. Their, their yard is fenced in. She's older. She doesn't go hiking. So even though through the board and train with the behavioral mod, she got off leash recall training and she does very well at it. The owner does not feel comfortable letting her dog off leash. Which is fine. Yeah. 100% oh, let's fine. Let's go back to what we said way in the, when I said way yeah. in the beginning. I was like, you maintain whatever you want to maintain. Exactly. 
Now, does she let her drag the 100-foot leash when they go to the park and stuff like that? And has her recall been solid? Yes. But if she never feels comfortable on clipping it, I don't blame her. Yeah, so that's, that's fine. fine. So the majority of the people that want off-leash training is going to be like what you're saying, a yeah. lifestyle selective thing. Right. Um, as far as getting in touch with me, um, so I have a Facebook, which is The Kinetic Canine, and canine is the letter K with a nine. My people know, because I always yeah. have to plug that all my stuff is yeah, the letter K, yours number is nine. Too. <laughs> yeah. um, thekineticcanine.com, or like I said, um, on Facebook, it's the, the Kinetic Canine Training and Rehabilitation. Um, and then, I mean, those are the two primary ways of getting in contact with me. I at this current point, only respond to inquiries. Yep. So if you go on my website, go to contact, you can fill out an inquiry form or you can directly book an in-person or um, like both my evaluations are either in-person at your property or in-person at my property with different availabilities. Yep. So you can either sign up directly for an evaluation without talking to me if you want to meet me in person and have me evaluate your dog or you're going to fill out an inquiry form. Um, that's right now, that's the only way to get in touch in contact with me okay and you do a combination of board and trains and privates or just board and train depends on the dog okay so if we're talking behavioral mod it's most likely going to be a board and train okay um if you have a very busy lifestyle and you want to kind of build a foundation i have like a 10 day kind of like foundational build thing, but there's a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with the owners after the fact. I'm just kind of threading the needle and then they're going to take off someone. Carry it, yeah. Yeah. So, but I for like normal, like reactivity stuff, like regular obedience, I do private lessons, but if you're talking any type of behavioral mod, I'm probably going to recommend some type of board and train. Yeah. Okay. Sweet. Well, thanks for being on the podcast. Of course. <laughs> Maybe we'll have you on again. We hit a lot of topics and we hit a lot of like, I think other things that could be like standalone episodes that we kind of, we were like, well, let's not go into that because that'll be like a whole long conversation. Well, that's, that's the thing. We mesh well. And even though we train a little bit differently, mm -hmm. our, our philosophies are very similar. Yep. And I feel like we can have a conversation and just talk about it forever so i agree yeah. i think we should make i think things. too like it's nice like we didn't say that actually in the beginning that we do train a little bit differently but it's nice to have um somebody on the podcast where we can disagree too and it's not going to cause like a major <laughs> argument between the two of us because i'm sure there are if we um do this again and i have you back on again which i would love to do um i'm sure we'll come up across topics or something where of one of us is like well actually I don't do it that way or I wouldn't do it that way or whatever but I feel like those are the types of conversations that I would like the people listening to actually hear because yeah. there's tons of different ways to train a dog 100% there's tons of different trainers out there and you really need to be or I am very pro of choosing the trainer that a you mesh well with that person just in general but also you mesh well with their training style I feel like this is a results-based business, okay? So I always tell people, like, I might, okay, let me let me back up and say, do I disagree with certain training things? Of course. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I don't hate on other trainers, and I am open to having civil conversations yeah. with anybody, and I don't care how somebody trains or the way that they like to train or what their niche is or what they use. All I care about is 
results for the owner. Mm-hmm. So we could probably get into a whole different conversation for yeah, another day <laughs> on on that particular subject yeah, about results. But at the end of the day, that's all I care about. So you and I can have a civil conversation about whatever, blah, blah, blah. X, Y, and Z trainer down the street can train however they want. But at the end of the day, all I care about is clients. I don't care about how people train. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's for the dog and it's for the clients. Yeah. And if you find a trainer that you like and you like the way that they train and you like the results that you're getting, then stick with them. But if you find a trainer and you liked them personally or personally and you thought the training was going great, but it's not getting you the results that you're looking for, then switch it up. Find somebody else. Like, there are tons of people out here for you, and that's why I want to try and get more people on the podcast of different training backgrounds and different training philosophies, because people are looking for a variety of different things, and I'm not everybody's cup of tea. <laughs> so, neither am I. <laughs> so, just, you know, do your research, but also, it's nice to have somebody else on here, like I said, who can maybe argue with me sometimes or argue with you drop some spongebob references <laughs> you only did you know. one which i'm pretty impressed <laughs> i tried my best i'm trying to be on my best behavior for your first for the podcast. first one maybe we'll get a little bit looser for your second we time. can and i definitely think if, if you guys liked listening to us you know talk or whatever that um you know i don't know if you want to put up a poll or something like mm-hmm. what do you want to hear two trainers talk about maybe yeah we can get into some debate some yeah, civil I, debate. Some civil debate. Yeah, I'm always like posting in um, the Facebook group for this podcast, which I think you're in it. I don't know. I'll send it to you so you have it's it. It's in your Instagram stories poll thing, isn't it? I don't know. Okay, don't whatever. Know. I'm on all the meads. Whatevs. <laughs> anyway, I post in there a lot asking people what they want me to yeah. cover and stuff like that. So definitely could pop a poll in there. You guys tell us. Like if you want the two trainers to talk about X, Y, and Z. Tell us. We'll talk about it. We'll That's do what we're it. Here for. We're here to debate. <laughs> for your listening pleasure. <laughs> your listening pleasure. <laughs> All right. So that's it for this episode. Thanks, Amber, for being on. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Um, please, if you liked this episode, let us know. If you liked having guests on, let me know. I'll have more guests on. If you liked this podcast in general, to help it grow, please write a review. Please share it. Go on your friend's phone and subscribe them on Apple Podcasts of the show so they get notifications (laughs) of when these episodes drop. You can join the Facebook group like we just talked about. If you want to get in touch with me, everything's mycaninecoach.com. That's my website. Or you can find me on Instagram at caninecoachdana or Facebook at caninecoachdana. All that stuff's in the show notes as usual. Thanks, Amber, for being on. You've been an excellent guest. And we'll catch you guys later. Bye, guys. Bye.